and welcome back to the Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing James Cameron's film Aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we are looking at minute number one, which begins with the 20th Century Fox logo and ends with the credit for Carrie Henn. Well, it's been a while, John. Yeah, it has. It's actually uh, been longer than I thought it would be. But we're back with a vengeance. We're back now. And everybody seems to be pretty excited about talking about aliens. In fact, I think I had more people during the process of Alien ask about when are we going to do aliens? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to to witness on our like our Facebook page or some other Facebook you know groups, movie groups I follow. I, I get the idea that at least in a certain age group, this is the preferred movie of the two. People tend to be a little bit more excited about it. I think getting giving it the minute treatment. I don't know. Maybe people think that there's a little bit more minutia here to get into, even as far as. I mean, it's heavier on dialogue. There's more characters to talk about. There's more trivia behind the scenes. Maybe. Yeah, they just want a longer run of the show. That's Maybe what that's it. it. More mean, weeks. More meat, more content, as they put it, and uh, and more shows. And we should shout out right now to the fellows at Star Wars Minute for starting this form, which has blossomed. Some might even say exploded. Some might even I, say sh- sprayed viscera in all directions <laughs> as it continues to grow and more and more movies are being analyzed one minute at a time. Right. All I can say is God bless everyone. God bless the format. And there are some movies that I can't even imagine how I you guys are doing it. Know. But yeah. knock yourselves out. Have a great time. <laughs> well, so here we are, Mitch. Aliens. Whole yeah, I, new movie. I whole suppose new. we should just jump right in. I, our, our plan for this, this run of this show is more or less the same. We'll have lots of guests. And I'll be here some of the time. Sometimes I won't yeah. be here. I suppose that's something we should mention up front. Um, that that Mitch, the, the format will be just slightly different. It'll be the same format, but Mitch is not always going to be here. I will be the constant through this one. I'll have a, a series of guest hosts with me who will be bringing along. Some of them will be bringing along their own guests. People that maybe I don't know, maybe I would, you know, people I wouldn't have a chance to talk to otherwise. That's going to be great. But Mitch will reappear from time to time. It'll be a nice surprise or treat when Mitch comes back. So it's going to feel a little bit different, but it's a different kind of movie. I think it should feel a little bit different. We're going to probably naturally be taking a different approach to talking about this movie as well. So that's it. That's a little bit of the behind the scenes business before we get right into the movie. Do you remember the first time that you saw this movie, John? Yes, I do. Um, it, but it's, it's a kind of mundane thing because it was just a rent the movie at the video store and go home and watch it thing. But as this as this goes along and even some of the minutes that we're going to have, I guess, this week, maybe next week, I'll be able to talk directly about what the experience was like to see it the first time because I still remember some of these opening scenes. And, uh, you know, as I repeatedly said on the alien show i see i saw this first i saw this before alien so i was watching this movie with only the bit of information bits of information i had about alien to back it up so it was an interesting way to enter into the film but basically yeah it was the video store at, at high class the grocery store in my little hometown rented the movie took it home and watched it by myself uh, no parents no sister nobody was around i just watched it by myself and i absolutely adored it I probably watched it two or three times before I took it back. So uh, that's it. I mean, like I said, a very mundane story. Watch, watching it on a VHS tape at home. We saw it opening day at the Egyptian in Hollywood. at, uh, And I think it was a, a 7 o'clock show. And it, it was absolutely packed. 
and the audience went berserk. We yeah. had so much fun watching this movie. And I remember um, not knowing how long the movie was. And one of the things about that length is that uh, you get lost because where things are falling, if it were a normal two-hour movie, are not in the same places. And so you really do feel almost trapped in this nightmare at a certain point because you don't know when this thing's going to end. It should be over by now and it's still going, right? So it was a real roller coaster ride. It was one of those one of those moments in the 80s where you walked out of the movie theater kind of like after The Road Warrior and you just feel exhilarated. And it, it was really an extraordinary experience. Yeah. I think that, you know, as we go along talking about this, from a structural standpoint, this movie is kind of unusual. Pinpointing the certain breaks, changes in the story, they're... It's not typical uh, in a lot of ways, so I could see how you might feel a little lost in the movie from time to time, like when you first saw it. It doesn't have those real clean breaks and real clean moments, and some of the moments happen a little later than you think they would. Some of them, some of it's sped up a little bit more than you might think it would have been. It was. It's an interesting movie in that sense. I think it's a unique experience in that sense. But and we'll be looking at the theatrical cut. Is that oh, correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk yeah. about the additional stuff, which. Cameron says that's his preferred version is the longer version, but we're going to be starting with the theatrical cut and then looking at the stuff that is put back in, added. Uh, and I understand how he might see this as the better version, his complete version being the better version, because that's the version he wrote. Uh, you look at the first draft of the script and all of the stuff with Newt and Tim and all that are there in the in the stuff with the Ripley's daughter is all also in the script. And so I, I get it. I get it. I just think it plays better, shorter. Yeah, I th- we get a little ahead of ourselves, but I think less is more with this. I mean, we talked about that a lot with Alien. I think in this case, it was the case as well. I, I don't remember the first time I saw the director's cut, but I know I'd seen the theatrical cut many times before. And I didn't feel like I needed any of the things that he added. I mean, there's some things that are cool, yeah, uh, we'll get into that. I don't want to get too much into specifics. There's some things that are added that I think are like cool ideas, but as far as the flow of the movie, the length of the movie, I mean, you're talking about you saw the theatrical release on opening day and felt like it was a long movie, or that yeah, wow, it should have ended by now. Geez, imagine if it was the other version. Yeah, right. And I and at that point in his career, he hadn't earned that yet, right? You know, there's no way. I mean, Terminator's great and all, but. Uh, I'm not sure if everybody's going, oh, I want to watch a two and a half hour long James Cameron movie right now. Right. But, you know, I'm sure we'll have a lot of back and forth about this subject as we talk about the little changes in in the director's cut. Some people probably haven't seen the theatrical cut, much like Alien. Well, certainly if they've they've retrieved it uh, on a torrent site or something... They're probably going to have seen the long version yeah. because I think the way the DVD works is there's something in its menu design that gives you the choice between the two versions, but all of the stuff is there. So yeah. good luck trying to rip that. And That's James <laughs> James Cameron is a technical master. A technology. He's able to make sure you, very much like George Lucas, he's able to make sure you only see his version. Well, let's just jump into the movie. And one of the things that fascinates me about it is from the absolute first frame of the film it's different which is to say that there is no there's no cinemascope ending on the fox fanfare because it's not in cinemascope it's shot flat it's 185 so the aspect ratio is is different so instantly the movie is different than alien uh cameron has said that he would have liked to have shot 
in the 235 aspect ratio, but he doesn't like anamorphic lenses. And they were difficult to work with. That on uh, Escape from New York, which John Carpenter shot anamorphic, Cameron said it made a lot of the special effects, which he was on the special effects crew, really difficult to do. So eventually he will move to Super 35, um, but at this point the Super 35 stocks didn't have a fine enough grain, and it would have probably been problematic. So the film is flat, um, and uh, that makes me wonder whether um, the VHS version was full frame or whether it was panned and scanned, because some of the times these films are made in such a way that when you remove the mat from the top and bottom of the image, you get a full, clean frame. Right. Uh, Coen Brothers would do that. Kubrick would do that. Uh, otherwise, if you remove the mat from the top and the bottom when it's projected on 35 millimeter, you see all sorts of extra stuff. You see lights and you see booms and you see mat boxes and all that sort of thing. So I have no idea whether Cameron was conscientious enough of that so that when it went to the square frame for TV whether you saw more stuff or not. So if anybody wants to get into that crazy minutia. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that I might notice as we go along. Like I hadn't thought about that before, you know, was it in pan and scan the first, you know, 20 times I saw it? Might have been. I often remember pan and scan moves because I saw them as camera moves, right? right. Back right. Uh, back then. So sometimes there's a couple of times where I watch a movie that I was very familiar with in the VHS era, and I'll miss that move. I'll yeah. kind of miss it when it's not there anymore. So I, I'll be when I go as I go back through this movie, I'll be on the lookout for that. But sometimes I really do remember, especially a very memorable movie like this. I'll remember little bits like that. And then we move into a Starfield, which does remind us directly of Alien. And that's one of the things that I find so interesting is that you've got this, um, you've got this Starfield, which is more colorful than the Starfield in alien it has blue in it it has it has something that's just that pops in a way that 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 deep oppressive black space of alien didn't have and within almost instantly on the soundtrack there's the rat-a-tat-tat of a militaristic snare drum beat which again you didn't have anything like that in the alien opening it was atonal it was oppressive and and i think it is brilliant that it just signals right off the bat that there's something militaristic about this thing. Right. And the blue nature of space, you know, as probably silly as it is um, to think of space as being a particular color, sets the tone for literally the tone for the rest of the movie. This is a blue movie. Yeah. And sure. it's always remembered that way. Everything about the marketing has always been that way, has always been blue tone, almost like filtered to look bluer, even like in posters and so on. Where I think we think of alien as green, right? I, black, that, black and green. Yeah. Black and green. Yeah, is that yeah, yeah. that's more of a marketing thing, though, right? Because if you're watching the movie, you're not seeing. It's not the same as seeing aliens. When you're watching aliens, it's blue. No, but the or, title's green, right? The title's when, green. when the alien title comes up, it's green, and, yeah. and when aliens title comes up, it's blue. So that's right. which I just think is so canny about this whole uh, strategy that Cameron employs for this film is this. He walks this beautiful tightrope between asserting this film as its own thing and yet really working hard to try to create a link back to the universe of the of the predecessor. So right. they feel both the same and different, which I guess is what you always want in all great sequels. And there aren't that many great sequels. And the right. ones that really work are the ones that are able to pull that off. There's the, the sequel where 
were a transitional sequel where, um, or at least the transitional opening to a sequel where the, the filmmaker is paying homage or, or recognizing what the last film had done and starts to build off of it, but then starts to separate away into their own vision. And I think this movie is definitely doing that. Then there's other sequels like maybe the one after this, Alien 3, where I'm not sure they do that. I th- it's more like a crashing through and destroying the last two movies right. in a right. lot of ways. I know that's people true. argue that, but I, that's how I feel. I mean, there's th- there's merit to that, I suppose. I, I don't like it as much. I would rather, if I'm watching a series of films, if we're in a franchise like this, I kind of want to get the transition, but maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm not being imaginative enough, but I like this. And I think as the next few days and maybe even next week, we'll still be talking about the little overlaps. I think that Cameron does between alien and more some of the Ridley Scott stuff that he, you know, we even talked about when we were talking about alien, how Cameron must've noticed this and that about alien and thought, I got to make sure and put this into aliens or improve upon it in aliens. I think we see that in the early parts of the film here where he's giving us a feeling of alien, but making sure to move along a little faster and move us slowly into his movie. And then suddenly putting us in, like, I feel like then we kind of crash into his movie, but we've been brought in nice and gently first. Well, so. 20th century Fox had had such good luck with sequels because their planet of the ape series. Uh, the second one starts literally right at the same instant that the first one ends, right? And they made five movies in that series. And obviously Star Wars, they were doing okay with that. The legalities aside of who owned what in terms of sequels. So probably of all the studios, certainly during the 60s, Fox was the one that was always sort of most interested in this idea of the sequel. Of course, the strategy back then that really changed in the 80s was prior to that, you would make a sequel for less money. And that was the idea. You'd, mm-hmm. you'd make a sequel... You'd, you'd make it for a smaller budget, the idea being that you would cash in. And, and that whole thing was pretty much exploded by Star Wars, by The Empire Strikes Back and the kind of business that that did and ultimately the business that, that Raiders of the Lost Ark franchised. And the idea that franchises, you could actually spend more on the sequel because it was going to bring more people in. But that, I'm sure, with uh, Fox and what they were going to spend on this movie, this was not a particularly expensive picture. Right? I mean, no. They, they, Ooh, that's a good question. Actually, I forgot to look up the budget. Well, I mean, they were fighting the budget at every at every. Oh, it was turn. 18. Yeah, I think it was that's 18. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the story is that they were, at least the original budget was 18, whether it went over or not, I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, it certainly made its money back in, you know, not as much as I thought. Actually, it only made $85 million domestic, which is good for 1986. It's very good for 1986. But I thought... You know, then I looked at, you know, we'll get into talking just about Scorney Weaver here in a second. I was looking at her, you know, films that she had made between Alien and Aliens and saw that um, and noticed that Ghostbusters had made 240 million domestic in 1984. That's crazy. I didn't I knew Ghostbusters was a hit, but man, that's a big hit. That's for a crazy big hit. Yeah. So this movie was, you know, people think of Scorney Weaver. They think of Alien. They think of Aliens. Obviously, this is her movie. That's another thing. I mean, we might as well just move right into the talk about Scorny Weaver. I mean, we're already doing it. She makes Alien as this unknown actress, and they use that to make her the protagonist slowly reveal that she's the protagonist over the length of the film. She becomes a star afterwards. But funny enough, between Alien and Aliens, she's not really the star of anything. 
she's always just the lead actress in a movie. Every time she was in a movie, it was, I, I don't want to call her a second fiddle or anything, but she went and made eyewitness in 1981. William Hurt was pretty much the star. I mean, if you watch the movie, it's definitely his movie. Ghostbusters is obviously Bill Murray and the rest of the Ghostbusters deal of the century, which I'd forgotten about. Do you, oh my how gosh. familiar are you with deal of the century? That's Friedkin, right? It is it's Friedkin's comedy. Mitch, I just read uh, the Friedkin connection. <laughs> Yeah, His, he doesn't mention it. I didn't even know he directed it. <laughs> I looked up Sigourney. I'm looking up Sigourney Weaver's filmography. I see Deal of the Century, directed by William Friedkin, and I had to go back and go. Wait, did I just read an entire biography where he mentioned every? He mentioned all kinds of little films I'd never seen. Didn't mention Deal of the Century. It must not have gone well. I'm betting I know who was responsible for it not going well. Who produced uh, that movie? Do you well, remember? I'm, I'm thinking more that Chevy Chase was the star of it, right? Right notoriously problematic for a lot of people two really <laughs> crappy political comedies that came out like right next to each other was that and then this terrible thing called wrong is right oh where richard brooks directed with sean connery it was at the premiere oh, of that and that. and one of the pre-screenings and brooks stood up and said hey everybody this is a comedy it's okay to laugh wow that's not what you want to have yeah, to cue a, the audience into right off the bat i say yeah i'd say if you're going to stand up in the middle of a screening that's going like that you have two choices. You either go up and do that, which you shouldn't do, or you just leave. Because <laughs> yeah. apparently you just it was said a big bomb. It was, his, it was his introduction, and I think everybody oh, knew, knew it was bad. Oh, so I see. He it, said, no, he oh, said I that. See. He actually oh, said that in his introduction. So that, that did not signal a good a good uh, thing wow. ahead. <laughs> so so anyway, Scorny Weaver, she's she's an eyewitness, which I watched recently and is not good. Um, strange role for her. Best def- or not best. I almost said best defense instead of deal of the century. I don't know. You remember that movie with Eddie Murphy? I do, um, yeah. You know, and then Ghostbusters is a huge hit, but it, you know, it's not her hit. So here we are. I think we might have a good reason for her to want to sign on to do Aliens, right? She's got this career going, but only there's only a certain level of success. You know, she's in a hit movie, but it's not her movie. She wants to get back to where she came from, and, and it does. Things really do change for her. After this movie, she embodies this role so well. We'll talk about that a lot. Um, gets an Oscar nomination for it. Next thing you know, there's grills and the mist and movies like that coming afterwards. So th- it worked. It was a good career kind of kickstart for her, even though her career wasn't going exactly bad. But. I love where they put her name in the frame because you've got a Brandywine production center frame, a James Cameron film center frame. Yeah. And then her name is at the the actual literal top of the frame you know it's really in this totally different place which is pretty awesome actually i think yeah i think that's actually that's a good point i didn't think to look you know i i found a little bit of interview footage with or not footage but old printed interviews with james cameron where he talks about how important she was to this whole thing there was no way they were going to make it without her i wonder if that wasn't if they weren't mindful of that we we're gonna like we had her sort of buried in the last movie secret protagonist now we're going to put her at the top of the of the screen and make sure you know that this is the lead. But yeah, and then that iconic image on the poster with with her with the flamethrower holding the kid. Oh yeah, it pretty much says what what we're dealing with here, which is great. It's true. That's that is something that I was going to bring up later too is the marketing for this movie and how they just went all in with with Scorny Weaver. I think they could have tried to be shrewd about her. And sort of made us wonder, well, is this Gordon Weaver's movie? Is it, are they going to pull another fast one on us? How exactly, like, is this character, you know, 
going to be Marion Crane or something. I don't know. But they certainly didn't care about that because they said, we're going to put her right up front on the posters. In the If you watch the trailers, they make it very clear she's in the entire film. You know, you actually get a lot of the climax of the movie in the trailer. And, uh, and they played up the whole Rambolina thing, too, because Cameron had written Rambo right. prior to this. And so she was being called Rambolina. I've never heard that. Oh, really? Rambolina? Rambolina, Rambolina. yeah. Rambolina. Yeah, that, was in the, that was part of the hype at the time. I was there, John. I'm surprised. That was a Rambet. I was, I was like seeing a, it all. Anyway. So then, uh, you know, we'll talk a lot. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver will be discussed at great length throughout the series. But we get the next credit we get is Michael Bean. Now, tell me, Mitch, what you thought of Michael Bean at the time. Were you keenly aware of him from Terminator? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was keenly aware of when I his name and Lance Henriksen, seeing that there was this con- continuity of of actors from the Terminator to uh, Aliens. And Terminator was huge. It was certainly huge with me. It was a big box office hit, but it was really an important movie to me, and I I loved the Terminator. And so when this came out and there was that continuity of cast, it was really exciting. Yeah, I was going to ask if. Was Terminator one of those, you went to the theater a few times to see it? Oh, things. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know what the release was like here in Kansas City, but you were in L.A. at the time. So yeah, I saw it in it L.A. Really available saw it, to you. I, was, I, I saw it on a Friday afternoon on Hollywood Boulevard, and it was just, it was such, it's such a great movie. And you and were you then aware of James Cameron? Like, did yeah. Did you think of it as an auteurish kind of I did. effort and go, oh, that's James I did. Cameron, no, what's we, he going to do next? When we heard he was going to do the sequel to Alien, that was really exciting. Yeah, because. Imagine. You know, he he had written the sequel to Rambo, and I I can't say that I have a lot of love for that movie. And so, when it turns out the thing he's going to direct is going to be, you know, Aliens, that was pretty exciting. Yeah. So Michael Bean, yeah, he's kind of the I I would say that as a high school kid that watched a lot of movies, including these two movies, he was cool, man. I thought he was real cool when I was in high school. And I'm kind of, you know, at that time, I think I thought he would be more of a, a a big lead in the future. I thought maybe he would actually become a big star. I'm not really sure. Well, had he he had stumbled with Rampage, right? That came out before this. Is Rampage this. the one with Nicolas Cage? No, it's where he's a serial killer. Oh, okay. Freak, Friedkin directed it. And I, I'm right, pretty right, sure right. that De Laurentiis See, made that remember. picture before, and then they buried it. I don't even. It, it didn't even really have a, a regular theatrical release, as far as I can remember. I mean, I never. I, I had to catch up to it when it finally came out on home video. I think the soundtrack album came out before the movie did because Morricone wrote the score. Mm. But so maybe that had been a a little stumble for his career. Maybe it's never good to make a movie and not have it come out. Well, of course, he ended up coming back in small roles and th- movies like Tombstone and so on, but. Never quite happened the way I thought it would for him. And, of course, he wasn't even supposed to be in this movie. You know that story. Right. Uh, just for the listeners, James Remar, I guess probably mostly famous from Walter Hill movies, like The Warriors and, and then being the villain in 48 Hours, he was cast and went through the the entire boot camp experience with the rest of the cast. He was supposed to be Hicks. But there's two stories I've heard about why that didn't work out. One was... He actually loaded, he's kind of crazy, apparently. He actually loaded live ammo in a shotgun and fired it on the set and blew a hole in the set. So that was one thing I heard. But then the other one that seems to be the more um, substantial story is that he was a drug addict and they found a bunch of drugs on him and asked him to leave. 
So uh, either way, he was erratic and, and apparently unreliable. And I think he was Walter Hill's boy. It was more like Walter Hill ushered him in and said, hey, I think this is your guy. And uh, there's very little evidence. I think that he actually is in the movie. Like you see some shoulder shots of him and things as they're walking through the hive the, or the um, when they first come across the, the colonists. But otherwise, he's not in the movie, and there's no telling whether the performance was there. I, I don't know. But Michael Bean being James Cameron's friend and having worked with him before, just swooped right in and took the role, and I think he knocks it out of the park. For some reason, there are many, many stories about this movie. You know what I mean? There are con- yeah. conflicting stories about how things happened. And uh, I, you have you were reading – is the book that you were reading the definitive – is there a definitive text on, on, this, on this? I don't know if I would say there's a definitive text. I mean there's things that have come out recently that I actually haven't seen yet. It's like a pictorial history that just came out recently. But I'm starting to dig in. But there's nothing like the Future Noir, like the Paul Salmon book on Blade Runner that is just this I haven't seen exhaustive anything like thing. that. Yeah. I mean there's so many, there's so many books about – all this stuff, but um, so anyway, you're going to be probably getting over the course of this podcast yeah. um, multiple stories of events, and I'm sure in some cases it's Rashomon, and in other cases <laughs> it's the man who shot Liberty Valance, and we're going to print the legend, you know. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? Well, the the rest of the minutes filled out with credits as this um, as this title is slowly coming into focus in the center of the frame. We um, we have Paul Reiser comes up next. Interesting third credit. We'll we'll talk about him more later. Some of these you know, credits we don't need to talk about now. We could talk about as they appear on the screen. But I will say that name actor. popped up, and we were like, "Oh, the guy from Diner! Wow, the funny." So the, he was the famous comedian. to you from Diner. Well, I, I mean, I remember I, the character. I loved Diner, so he, he was famous to me. <laughs> By the time I saw else. Diner and his was... stand-up stuff, I'd seen him do stand-up, sure. and so really? okay. Uh, so we knew he was a comedian, and that was interesting to see the name of you know a, a comedic actor pop up there, which kind of like in Drive when Albert Brooks shows up, it's not the Albert Brooks you're used to, and so that's one of the great things about casting against type, I think. Yeah, I by the time I saw this, I think I'd already been watching My Two Dads, so I already had a weird idea about Paul. Well, Reiser there you go. Being, yeah, not even just being an actor, I guess a comedian. He was funny, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and even with Lance Henriksen, his credit pops up next. And yeah. I knew him from the Terminator and from, you know, some other genre stuff. Uh, you know, he pops up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's, he's infamous for popping up in the background of movies, classics from the 70s. He's also in net, in Network. He's one of the, apparently, of the legal team from the network. Oh, yeah, he is, right, yeah. Negotiating yeah. with the great Ahmed Khan. Yeah, yeah. And he's in um, Dog Day Afternoon as well. He actually has a named credit, but I honestly don't remember him from that. So I'm wondering... He's in the right stuff as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's in the right stuff later. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that is before this. But to me, Lance, Lance Henriksen comes around, like, comes into my consciousness in, in the two James Cameron films, uh, Terminator and, and this, and Aliens, which I saw about at the exact same time. So I didn't know him, for, but it's funny to to look back. He was just like, that guy's got a face that belongs in the background of a movie, apparently, because <laughs> he kept getting cast as these background characters. Well, but, and the, and of course, Paxton, Hendrickson, and Goldstein would all work together again in Near Dark, which Catherine yeah. Bigelow would direct a year later. And that's that movie, it's a brilliant movie that I'm always surprised how little it's seen. And I think that must have to do with the fact that it was owned by 
DAG, which went into receivership, and I don't know exactly where the video rights are, and even the Blu-ray of it is a smaller, uh, you know, more limited release. But if you haven't seen Near Dark, you are in for a treat, and you owe it to yourself to seek that film out. And I will say, be warned, the marketing, the way they market that movie now is wrong. They, Whenever they package that Blu-ray, they they released it post-Twilight. They want you to think it's a Twilight movie. Have you noticed <laughs> that Blu-ray? No, you're right. That's why that is. Yeah, I never thought about that. Don't but of pay course, that's what it. it is. The original yeah. poster was Bill Paxton wow. full of bullet holes. <laughs> yeah. That's the movie you're going to see. It's a Western. It's a vampire Western set in modern day. It's brilliant. So New really Dark, is. highly recommended. That's our Alien Minute recommendation, video recommendation for the day. We really we just had the one credit left. It's Carrie Hen. We have no idea who this is. That's right. Nobody knew. Nobody knew who that was. No idea. And you know what? We're not going to talk about it right now. Uh, I think we have a lot of opportunities to talk about. It. The good thing about Carrie Hen is that she is very public now. She she actually has embraced this role that she had as a child, and she does the comic cons, and she does interviews, and she goes to the panels that all the other cast members go to. So it's cool. We get, uh, we'll have a lot of inside information direct from her about what it was like to be in this movie at her age. Well, that's all I got then. Uh, that's all I got. That was a good long first minute. Welcome back, we, everybody. Yeah, welcome back. That makes, hopefully that makes up a little bit for us being gone so long. John, where would people find us on the internet now? On the internet right now, we are at alienminute.com. We are also on Facebook at Alien Minute Listener Society. That's not what we call it, though, is it? Man, I've forgotten the exact name of it. I'll get that right later. Uh, we're also on iTunes. You can subscribe to us there on Stitcher, Google Play, any podcatcher, I believe, we're there. You can also follow us on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod and on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute 1 of Aliens. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 2.